Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast, Tropics, and the newly launched Sunburst Chico, are now offering free overnight shipping on domestic orders of $1,000 or more. All California orders ship free. Berkeley Yeast, ordinary yeast made extraordinary. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. Everybody knows that yeast plays one of the most important roles in brewing, no matter the style and recipe you choose. Yeast simultaneously influences flavor, aroma, acidity, brightness, and mouthfeel and brewing a lager is no exception. Discover our entire SAF lager range at fermentus.com, where you'll find yeast for traditional to modern style lagers. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there that cans are better than bottles or vice versa, but it's so much more nuanced than that. This is the first study really of its kind that was directly comparing cans versus bottles over time. This week on the show, new insights to the question of whether bottles or cans will keep your beer fresh longer. Hi, I'm Katie Frameth. I'm the Technical Brewing Projects Manager with the Brewers Association, and I'm based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Katie, talk about why the literature on beer stability prior to your recent publication isn't really a good fit for the modern beer landscape. Yeah, so prior literature on beer stability really focuses on beers that have been bottled. And what we've seen over the last four or five years, really maybe even starting before then, is a switch in choice of package type. So, um, you know, especially with the pandemic, that really sped some things up. And we're seeing more beers being packaged in cans than before, which this prior literature is highlighting. And as we can assume, or a lot of people have assumed, There are differences between package types, and they do different things for beer stability. And since we don't have the research looking at beers packaged in cans, it doesn't really fit as as well. We're we're really missing some information there. There's also like, I mean, a lot of this research goes back 
pretty far before craft was really much of a thing too, right? I mean, isn't there like a lot of stability research on like basically light lager? Yep, that's correct. A lot a lot has been done on light lager because historically, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, before craft beer, that's that was the beer landscape of the time. And so now there is a lot more diverse beer styles out there. And in, in these different beer styles, we have a completely different matrix. It's more complex, different ingredients, you know, different c- chemical compounds in there that are going to be um, doing different things than what's in the light lager. So that that's another reason why the literature, previous literature, hasn't really caught up in beer stability to today's beer landscape. You set out to answer three questions. What were they? Sure, yeah. So with this research, uh, the first question we asked was, are there differences in the chemical profiles of beer aged in cans versus bottles? And when I say beer, uh, I'm talking about beer that's more reflective of today's beer industry. So more complex, not just an American, light American lager. So that was question one. And then you, to follow up on that question, we wanted, to, we wanted to ask, does the style impact the differences observed? So we use two different styles an amber ale and an American, or sorry, an IPA, India Pale Ale. We chose those because we thought that those two were more reflective of today's beer landscape. And then digging in further, uh, if we did see differences, we, we wanted to understand what were the mechanisms driving the differences, or at least look at the information and find evidence to propose mechanisms that were driving differences uh, in, in package type over time. Okay, tell us how you set up your experiment to answer those questions. Yeah, so this this uh, research project was a collaboration with New Belgium Brewing Company, and so they donated the beers for the study. We used their Voodoo Ranger IPA and their Fat Tire Amber Ale. And so one batch coming from the same bright tank was packaged into both cans and bottles. So same starting material, two different package types. Um, And those were packaged within the same week. So everything timing-wise was all about the same time. So effectively, we have kind of like four treatments. We've got IPA bottles, IPA cans, amber bottles, and amber cans. And so we collected those from New Belgium. Uh, When we got them on site, We stored them for the first month under refrigerated temperatures, so four degrees Celsius, and then uh, subsequent five months at room temperature, 20 degrees Celsius. So these these samples, these cans and bottles, went under a six-month aging period. During that six-month aging period, I sampled... Bi-weekly, I took three cans, three bottles of the IPA and the amber ale and uh, collected three replicates in which I took took aliquots, put them into glass vials, and then we stored them in negative 80 degrees Celsius. So that's really cold. It's like basically cryopreservation temperatures. And the reason why we do that is because we wanted to preserve that sample in time. We wanted to make sure that there were no chemical changes. 
So you could run them all at once. Yep, exactly. Yes. Um, I know you said you aged it all, you know, you aged it refrigerated for the first part. Did you take samples like right out of the gate, like the day it was packaged too, or, or did they not start until after that first period of refrigerated storage? Yeah. So due to just kind of logistics, we were, we weren't able to take samples the day of packaging. So we, we got the samples from new Belgium when they were all ready. And um, this, this is kind of unfortunate uh, and for reasons that kind of later show in the data, but um, for the Amber ales, we were able, so our time zero was basically day 14 and our time zero for the IPA, I believe it was like day seven. When you did finally run these samples, talk about the approach that you took. So we used a non-targeted GCMS approach for detecting chemicals. And I want to dig into what that really means. So non-targeted, basically, we are looking at everything that our instruments able to detect. And the reason why we did this is because there was really no prior research looking at cans versus bottles. So we really didn't know what we should be targeting. So we just, we cast as big of a net as we could, and we saw what we saw with the instrument that we had. Uh, so that's kind of, that's what the non-targeted approach means. And our GCMS, um, that is the instrument that we were using. And so that instrument is able to detect small, non-volatile compounds. Katie, what is a metabolomics workflow and how does that work? Yeah, so metabolomics is in its simplest definition, the study of really small molecules. And we're studying and looking at a lot of them in, a, in our beer matrix. And so the workflow that I, I used was uh, we had we have our samples, right? And they're frozen over and collected over our six-month aging period. So we thawed them and and then we did a derivatization process. This process allows us to kind of see or be able to detect more uh, metabolites or compounds. Um, so that we're kind of casting an even bigger net, right? Uh, and then once we had this had our samples thawed and this derivatization process completed, we ran that liquid on our instrument through our instrument, our gas chromatography mass spectrometry. And we did that in two ways through direct injection, as well as headspace. And again, we're able to detect volatile and small polar non-volatile compounds with these two analytical processes on this instrument. Is that then, um is that mm-hmm. derivative is that derivatization process um worth talking about or is that too nerdy and going to put everybody to sleep? Um, it's kind of nerdy. Okay. Bas- yeah, basically, what it is is it changes the chemical structure of some compounds so they come out of solution more readily, and that's how we are able to cast that bigger net. All right, that was a good not not sleepy summary. Good job. Cool. <laughs> All right, keep going. I think I cut you off. All good. Yeah, so from our instrument, our GCMS instrument, we get this huge data matrix. Um, so then with this big data matrix, what we need to do is a little bit of processing and cleanup um, in order to be able to use it. Uh, and what we want to do in the end is get the information 
turn that information into metabolite annotations. Um, so we're able to do that, take, um, take the data, turn it into annotations through open source metabolite libraries. Uh, there's the, the two most common ones are NIST and GOLM. Um, and so what they do is they take the information from the GCMS and then basically match it to the library. So it's kind of like fingerprint matching. So say this compound kind of looks like this and, and what the output is is a chromatograph. Really, they look like squiggly lines on an XY graph. And so more or less, we're we're matching those squiggly lines with our library entries from these open source libraries. And that allows us to say, okay, this squiggly line pattern means, for example, um, iso-alpha acid right. or um, iso-amyl acetate. Uh, so then that allows us to confidently say, this, these are the metabolites in our beer. Um, and then once we have this nice, pretty cleaned up data matrix, we're able to take that and run it through our statistical methods to start answering those three questions that I, I proposed and my group and I wanted to answer. I imagine that the untargeted approach you took meant that you ended up with data for hundreds, if not thousands of different chemical compounds. Talk about what your process uncovered and how you decided where to focus from there. Sure. So the big, the big um, data matrix, what we ended up with are, were 350 molecular features. So that just means 350 um, items that our, our program said these might be something. So then we take those and then we run them one by one against our, our libraries, our NIST GOLM libraries. And from that, 351, we downsized to 73 of those molecular features that we were able to annotate and say, okay, this was actually something. It wasn't just noise or, um, or something like that. And then from those 73 metabolites, um, we wanted to understand, okay, which ones are important to the story of what, what are the differences in beers over time packaged in cans and bottles? And so in order to do that, we utilized various statistical um, tests to say, okay, these are the metabolites that are interesting to our questions that we put out there. And we ended up with 17, what, what I call metabolites of interest. Um, and so once we had that 17, that, that group of 17, we dug in further. So it's this whole process of starting big and kind of refining more and more and more in order to end up with be being able to, to use our statistical tools to answer our questions. Nice. Um, I'm just curious, when you whittle down from that three, 350 to 73 or whatever, you know, how do you know for sure that the, the difference is all noise. Like, is it possible there's some in there that maybe we just don't know much about yet and that's why they're not in your library or, you know, maybe talk about that. I'm just curious. Sure. Yeah. So uh, again, these kind of open source libraries are open source and they're, they're certainly not complete. So there are definitely um, some 
some entries in there in these libraries that are unknown compound and then it has like a number associated with it. Uh, so, so we don't know what those, those are. And luckily through the process of whittling down, none of those unknown compounds were determined metabolites of interest. So we weren't able, we, we didn't have to rather, um, talk about a compound that we didn't even know. Um, so there, the other part of the process as you're going through kind of this data cleanup, um, it just is kind of anticipated that there's going to be some noise, right? Sure. Our instruments aren't perfect or there's some like co-evolution or, or the like within our data pre-processing that, that didn't quite um, clean up. So it's just noise. What do you want to say about those 17 metabolites that caught your attention? Yeah, so we had 17 metabolites of interest and we had various classes. So we had amino acids, carboxylic acid esters, fatty acid esters, monoterpenes, sesquiterpenes, alcohols, carbonyls. And when I look at this, that that kind of makes sense to me, right? Like we, those are things that should be in beer. And then when we look at the specific metabolites, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rattle off all 17. But when we look to the to the literature, we see, oh wow, okay, it has been, this has been found in beer, and they do have sensory uh, attributes described in the literature. We know that pinocarvine, for example, um, has been described as minty. And so for 13 of the 17 metabolites, we have sensory attributes associated with them. And then the other four that don't have sensory attributes associated with them, it kind of makes sense. Um, it's our amino acids and um, an alcohol. Um, so it doesn't mean that they don't have an important story uh, or part to play and the perception of beer, it just means that we didn't find any um, in particular to say, all right, this amino acid tastes like XYZ. Okay, cool. Coming up. If I take a random amber sample and run it through this model, it's going to fairly accurately tell me if it came from a bottle or a can. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG, proud distributor of New Zealand Hops Limited, who invites you to experience Nectaron, an aromatic New Zealand hop drenched by tropical waterfalls of grapefruit, passion fruit, pineapple, and peach. Nectaron is in stock and ready to ship. So order now and unlock the delicious citrus potential of your next IPA or New England IPA. Contact your BSG sales rep with any questions or visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash hops to learn more. 
Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Grist Analytics is the leading quality and production control software platform built by and for craft brewers. The unique cloud-based application gives the unprecedented ability to capture data your way and correlate it across the brewery. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and track brewery performance while listening to this podcast. Grist Analytics helps you skip past hours of sorting through spreadsheets and paper logs to making informed decisions that drive efficiency and deliver better beer with confidence. GristAnalytics.com. Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The District St. Paul Minneapolis Happy Hour slash Motuika Hopcore Rub is July 21st at Surly Brewing. District Georgia presents Evaluation of Aging Beers with Jen Blair, July 29th at Stats Brew Pub in Atlanta. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting at End of the Hills in Kerrville is August 4th through the 6th. District Midwest has a summer meeting August 5th at the Yellow Springs Barrel Room. District Milwaukee meets at the Molson Coors Miller Inn September 21st. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids October 19th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. back to the show. What is PCA modeling and how did you use it? So PCA modeling stands for principal components analysis. Uh, it's a type of multivariate analysis that you can use to look and look at the variation across a lot of data points. It explains variation uh, within a two-dimensional kind of 
visual. So we put all of our data points in here across all four of our treatments and all time points. And we basically said to the model, try to explain the difference, like tell us like, where is this variation coming from? And so when we did that, uh, we were able to see that all of the IPA data points clustered together and all of the amber points clustered together. And on a PCA model, points that are closer together are more similar. So if you can kind of imagine this, uh, on this model, it's it's kind of looks like an XY axis. All of our IPA points are kind of all grouped together. All of our amber data points are grouped together. And this makes sense because this is basically saying that these the are two very different beers. <laughs> these are two very different beers. Yeah. yeah. The style should be the main driver of variation across all of our data points. Uh, so in essence, this was just a really good validation check that, that we're seeing this. Okay, cool. All right. Something interesting happened when you looked at package predictability by beer style. Talk about that. Yeah. So... The next step in the process of kind of continuing to whittle down and dig into our questions was taking taking our samples, um, all of the amber ales, and then all of the IPA uh, samples, and running it through another type of model called a PLSDA, partial least squares discriminant analysis, um, which means nothing. Uh, but what's important is that this model is able to predict. Um, so it looks similar to PCA, but it's predictive. And so when I told this model, okay, take all these amber, all these amber data points and tell me, can you differentiate and predict based off of package type? Uh, the answer was yes for amber ales, but no for IPA. Uh, and what that means is that if I take a random amber sample and run it through this model, it's going to act fairly accurately tell me if it came from a bottle or a can. And so we saw this, right, with Amber Ale, but we did not see this with IPA. So in seeing this difference in predictability, what this is saying is that package predictability is style dependent, meaning there are differences between these styles. The style is driving differences um, in cans and bottles. Next, you looked at some baseline differences between cans and bottles. Explain all that. Sure. So again, just kind of continuing to drill down into our questions from our previous work, looking at the PLSDA models uh, for the amber ale, since we saw those differences, we wanted to figure out, okay, well, why are we seeing those differences? Um, so when we did that, we, we, when we drilled down, uh, we, we started to see that there were some baseline differences in some of our metabolites of, of interest. And in particular, we saw baseline differences between cans and bottles, that is, in the three amino acids that that are a part our, of our metabolites of, of interest, um, which we found to be quite interesting. And by baseline, you mean your first measurement, basically, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Or for our, our, what we termed week zero. However, okay. um, 
yeah, it wasn't exactly the it wasn't exactly zero, but it was your first first measurement. Got exactly. It. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you said you saw a lot of differences in amino acids. Were did that kind of like steal all the thunder, or were those differences spread out across lots of other different classes of compounds too? So we did see baseline differences in three of the esters that we uh, were that are part of our metabolites of interest. Um, but we, we found that the amino acid baseline differences um, were, was a more interesting story. Talk about why amber ales packaged in cans might not fare as well as bottles. Yeah, so to kind of explain the difference, significant differences that we were seeing uh, in these amino acid baseline um, relative abundances, so what we found was that the amino acids were higher in cans than in bottles. So higher in amber ale cans than in bottles. And when we started to think about this, and, and again, getting to that third question of trying to kind of look at the evidence and propose mechanisms of, of what's happening here, what, what we realized was that, um, you know, it's, it's pretty well described that uh, amino acids will adsorb onto glass. Um, so adsorption basically is really just adhering to the surface of, of a material rather than ab, like with a B, absorption, which is kind of going into as a sponge would absorb liquid. Uh, and, and this is a pretty common issue that that labs have actually when testing for amino acids um, on analytical instruments. And so we are proposing, uh, have proposed that the amino acids must be adsorbing onto the glass and not onto the can liner. Um, and so the reason why this is interesting is because we know amino acids are part of the substrates that lead to staling compounds known as Strecker aldehydes. And so if there's more in solution in a can of these amino acids, um, there's going to be more potential. Yeah. yeah. More fuel for, for staling. So um, again, this is just three amino acids. We weren't able, we, we didn't target amino at all amino acids, but it's really consistent against the three that we were able to annotate. And so what would be interesting is to do a more targeted study um, to see, you know, is, is this across the board uh, happening with, with all and to kind of dig in and, and um, maybe explore this proposed mechanism. Uh, and I'll say also that um, we're seeing this, right, only in amber ales and not in IPAs. And what we're thinking is that from the hops in IPA, there's uh, almost like a protective um, aspect that those hops bring because we're, we're thinking what's going on there is that the polyph polyphenols from the hops in the IPA are binding to the amino acids. Okay, now it's time to talk about the changes in metabolites over time. Where would you like to start? Yeah, uh, I think starting with kind of just 
the fact that we're kind of progressing now that we've explored why we're seeing these differences um, in the baseline differences, we kind of want to then look at, you know, this is a, this is a stability study. So it only makes sense that we're going to start looking at what's happening over time. Um, and, and through our statistical tools, um, we were able to make some linear modeling, right? So we have time and relative abundance. Um, so that, that lends itself really nicely to, to linear modeling. And so we did that for each of our 17 metabolites of interest. And then we, we ran other statistical tests to say, okay, so over time, are these metabolites significantly changing? And then we did that for each of our sample types. So our IPA bottles, IPA cans, amber bottles, and amber cans. Uh, so then we were able to see how many of our 17 metabolites of interest were changing significantly over time per treatment. And what we found was that the amber cans had more metabolites changing over time than the, than the other treatments. So 10 metabolites were significantly changing in amber cans versus four in amber bottles versus five in IPA cans uh, and six in IPA bottles. So really what this is saying is, okay, chemically speaking, it looks like amber cans are not as chemically stable as compared to our other three um, treatment groups. You also observed what's known as flavor scalping. Explain what you noticed and what flavor scalping means. Yeah, so um, part of you know the progression is looking at these metabolites that are changing over time. And the, the group that we really dug into and found some of the more interesting um, story, so to speak, were our terpenes. And so we looked at these terpenes. Um, we had four that we identified. We had we have humulene, myrcene, pinocarvone, and alpha calicorine. Um, and so I'll just kind of start with humulene and myrcene. And and so what we saw was in humulene. Well, for both of them, they're de decreasing over time, but for humulene, they're significantly decreasing over time more in bottles than in cans. Uh, and that's true for both styles, the IPA and the amber. Um, the myrcene, they're decreasing, but not a significant difference um, depending on package type. And so when we're looking at this, we're, th we're, um, we're thinking, okay, like what could be causing this? And, and one thing that we saw in the literature is that the, this has been described before in that depending on water, the water solubility of these terpenes, there's going to be different um, scalping effects. Um, so I'll kind of pause there and talk about what scalping is. So scalping, flavor scalping um, is something that happens in food and beverages in which the packaging material kind of takes um flavor active compounds from, you know, the food or beverage that it's containing and, and it takes it out and like absorbs it into its material. Um, so this so is that's where we're, we're known, you know, crown liners and things like that are, are, are known to have this problem, right? Yep. Crown liners. And there has been work to show that can liners uh, are, sorry, um, 
yeah, can can coatings on the inside have been shown to to do this. Um, so this really matches already described literature. Um, so so that is um, interesting. However. Previous literature hasn't shown the difference between cans and bottles. It just shows that can liners or um, bottle crown liners can absorb. But what's fat, what's novel here is that now we have a direct comparison of can and bottle and what's happening. And, and that it is decreasing more, humulene that is, is decreasing more over time um, in the bottles than the cans. Okay. And, it, it's... Yeah. It's um, you know, it's it's logical, I suppose, to expect a different degree of of flavor scalping between bottles and cans. Do you want to go into more detail about why that might be? Absolutely. So one of the mechanism the mechanism that we're proposing here, uh, and and why we're seeing this effect, uh, is a mechanism of equilibrium, really. So if you think about it, in a can. The, the liquid is in constant contact with the beer liner. So at some point, there's got to be an equil equilibrium that's met with that can liner. And so the scalping kind of reaches a maximum point and then it doesn't go any further. But there's that's not the case in bottles because you have that headspace above above the liquid line um, and then the bottle cap. And so what we're thinking is that because we don't have that equilibrium occurring, the, the volatile terpenes, the humulenes coming out of solution um, because it has a really low water solubility, it's coming out of solution and it's going into the cap liner, but then it's kind of getting trapped there um, because of that gas interface and it's, and it's not have, it doesn't have the ability to go back into solution because we have that headspace um, between the liner and the beer. So the liner kind of continues to scalp and um, those, those molecules um, and they're not allowed to go back into solution like you would have in a can. Um, and another possibility is that we, we know that can crown, sorry, bottle crowns, um, we know that they're not hermetically sealed like a can, right? We have oxygen ingress. So potentially what's happening is as oxygen is ingressing, maybe there are oxidation reactions happening with, with the humulene, um, or, you know, maybe the humulene is finding its way out. Um, so something's happening in that interface um, that is different than than the beer in in a can. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was just thinking. You know, obviously, there's a lot more surface area in the can liner versus the bottle liner. Mm -hmm. You would think that maybe that would increase scalping in a can, but that doesn't really seem to be the case. Yeah, I was actually pretty surprised to see this. It, it kind of had gone gone against what I would have thought to to have seen. You also observed other terpenes that had opposite trends by package or that were actually increasing over time in both packages. Talk about that. Yep. So kind of going along with the one size does not fit all um, and really the, the chemical properties of, of these compounds, you know, being playing a huge effect on, on what we see. Um, so pinocarbonate, Pinocarvone, 
uh, was a terpene that we saw that was decreasing over time, but it was flipped in that we saw more uh, a more significant decrease for both cans, sorry, for both IPA and amber ales in the cans than the bottles. Um, so what's interesting about pinocarvone uh, is that it has an oxygen molecule um, on, on the chemical st structure. And so perhaps something is happening in, in the interaction where there's a greater interaction between that can liner uh, polymer with that oxygen um, with that oxygen on the pinocarvone compared to myrcene and humulene. And then uh, we, we saw alpha calicorine increasing over time uh, and consistently between both styles. They were increasing significantly more in the cans than the bottles. Um, this compound, you know, what, what we're thinking mechanism-wise is happening here is that either it's being formed uh, or... It, it's being released, enzymatically released, but but we really don't know. Um, we don't know because we were just looking at what we saw. Uh, yeah. It sounds like you ended up with solid yeses for your first two questions, which were, are there differences between cans and bottles? And does beer style matter uh, or impact those those differences? But the answer to your third question of which mechanisms drive those differences is a bit more complicated. How about summing up the answer to that third question and talking about sort of where we go from here? Yeah, so you're absolutely right that we, we kind of got a solid yes on those first two questions. And then we were able to propose mechanisms uh, that were describing the differences that we saw between style and package type. Uh, so to summarize kind of the evidence and the mechanisms that, that we're proposing, so we, we found evidence that amino acids were lower in the amber ale bottles uh, due to adsorption. So that's our proposed mechanism there. Um, for the hop terpenes, uh, we found evidence that they were certainly interacting with their packaging material um, and that the chemical properties were likely impacting those effects. So again, water solubility um, and, and different um, uh, compound interactions with the various types of packaging material, glass versus the polymer on the can liner or the crown, crown liner. Um, and that really this work, where do we go next? You know, the work just scratches the surface. This is the first study really of its kind that was directly comparing cans versus bottles over time. Um, so, so again, we just kind of scratched the surface and there are lots of other jumping off points from here where folks can do more targeted work. Um, targeted work on various like groups of compounds. So for example, the amino acids or hop terpenes, um, or they can really do some like digging into those mechanisms and see if what we proposed is actually what happened or is, is something else going on. Um, 
But I think, you know, in the end, what we see is that there's no like best package, right? There's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there that um, cans are better than bottles or vice versa, but it's so much more nuanced than that. And, and so to think that one's going to be better across the board than the other just isn't realistic. Life's too nuanced. Um, and so what, what we found really just um, conf- confirms that. Cool. Yeah. Do you know, um, is there anybody, do you know of anyone who's planning to do some additional work on this or, or is there anything that you're particularly excited about that you wish someone would, would pursue? Um, I, I'm not sure of anybody. I'm not aware of anybody doing follow-up work. Uh, however, what I'm really excited about is, is really looking at the various can liner materials. So there's lots of, and this was something that we didn't get, get into and we actually don't know the can liner material of the cans of the samples in this study, unfortunately. <laughs> that, I know that would have been great um, because I think that there's definitely some, some stuff to get into on the interactions of, of various compounds. Uh, in particular, I think our, our, the hop terpenes are something of interest um, in how, how different can liners can scalp more or less. And I actually... I was just at the ASBC annual meeting in Pittsburgh and, and a group out of New Belgium, they did an in-house study and found that uh, there were, yes, indeed, um, differences in flavor scalping over time, depending on the can liner. So, so since this study, New Belgium was able to kind of have that relationship with their manufacturer and start to know and learn, okay, what is that can liner? Um, and, and we are seeing from what they reported and, and, and described was that can liner is going to have type is going to have an effect. So I'd, I'd like to see more work in that area. Cool. All right. Um, I'm out of questions. Is there anything you were dying to say that I failed to ask about? Hmm. I guess I, I'll say if anybody's interested in kind of digging more into the specifics, um, the paper that we put out on this work um, through American Chemical Society, it should be open source still until I think around September. Okay. So um, yeah, that should be available for, for folks to nerd out on if they want it. Cool. We'll include a link in the show notes. Cool. <laughs> That was Katie Frommuth here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a link to her paper while it's still open source. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stop.